Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel is committed to proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and Messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. We are learning about the very simple concept of walking with God, a concept introduced in these early chapters of Genesis. Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, Abraham walked with God. So we've been learning about what it means to walk with God. It's a simple concept, but there's none more worthy, as the prophet Micah says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8. Our purpose in life, it turns out, is not terribly complex. Be fair and just toward others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be a person characterized by mercy, kindness, and loyalty. And finally, walk humbly with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? We learn from the Torah that walking with God entails the fear of God, the love of God, and cleaving unto God, which means to glue ourselves to him. We learned from Ter Stegen that walking with God is a matter of cleaving to him continually, constantly conscious of the inner soul basking in the radiance of his being. One who desires to walk with God puts away every impediment that stands between him and God and renounces all that is not God. I am speaking of keeping one's focus on God as much as possible and remaining in constant fellowship with God, enjoying his company like our first father and mother who walked with him in the Edenic cool of the day. To walk with God is the fulfillment of what it says in the teaching of the apostles, pray without ceasing, in all things give thanks, and rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. To walk with God is a continual heart of prayer, like the constant conversation with God that Rebbe Nachman of Breslov taught his disciples, speaking to God and listening for God in every moment, speaking in one's own words, like a child to his father. Walking with God requires us to be present to experience God in the moment. Our minds never want to be in this present moment, and that's why we so rarely experience God. Instead, our busy minds are always reviewing the past, re-watching something that happened in the past, like re-watching a movie, replaying some negative thing that happened, and feeling the same feelings all over again, as if it was happening right now. But it's not happening right now. Our minds are in the future, worrying about this or waiting impatiently for that. As Yoda says, all his life, has he looked away, to the future, to the horizon, never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. The mind set in the flesh has no interest in the present moment. Look at how quickly the mind set on the flesh seeks to escape the present moment. It's constantly reaching for the smartphone to open some social media app to find some distraction from the present moment. It's constantly scheming about what it's going to do next or what it needs to be happy in the future. But walking with God does not happen in the past, it doesn't happen in the future, and it certainly doesn't happen on your cellular device. It happens only in the present. The stream of busy thoughts and negativity that cloud the mind conceal God's presence from us. But if we stop and rest in Him, 
and learn to be still and know that I am God, we find delight, peace, joy, and a rich feast for the soul. It's not something that just happens automatically. It does take some effort and some mental self-discipline. For example, think of how quickly the mind starts to wander from God when you're reciting the daily prayers. Think of how quickly our kavana fails us and how rarely we are able to keep the mind's eye focused on the unseen God through the whole of the Amidah or through a single psalm. If it's difficult to do so for a few minutes while we are in the posture of prayer, how much more difficult will we find it in the distraction of the day's business? Moreover, you might think to yourself, it's fine to speak theoretically of this idealistic euphoric state of spiritual peace when a person is at peace and everything is going well, but I've got real problems, real things to deal with, and my life is full of all sorts of crap, and that makes it impossible to even imagine keeping my focus on God. I can't even properly manage my own affairs, much less attain some blissful state of spiritual transcendence. Or, better yet, if I could just get away from people, maybe, I would be able to walk with God. It sounds delightful, but I have to deal with all these awful people. Or, my husband drives me crazy. Or how about the person who says, be real. I'm suffering here. I'm going through some real serious stuff, serious anguish and pain, physical pain. So maybe this all sounds a little bit naive when measured against real life situations, the daily business of life, of dealing with people and children, or God forbid, when dealing with real suffering. Let's take a look inside our Parsha. Our Torah portion begins with Abraham in the presence of God. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. There's two ways to read this. On the one hand, you could read it as a general statement intended to introduce the ensuing narrative about how Abraham entertains three strangers who turn out to be angels. Accordingly, the words, and the Lord appeared to him, refer to the three strangers. But the Talmud read these two appearances as distinct incidents. According to the Talmudic telling of Genesis 18, 1 and 2, the Lord first appeared to Abraham at the door of his tent. While Abraham conversed with the Lord at the entrance of his tent, then he saw three men approaching from the distance. He immediately left the presence of God, who remained there at the entrance of the tent, and went out to meet the wayfarers. This reading of the passage takes Genesis 18, 1, to refer to a separate appearance of God distinct from the appearance of the angels in 18.2. And from this interpretation, Rav Yehuda derived the principle that hospitality to wayfarers is greater than welcoming the divine presence. So how could Abraham consider three strangers more important than the Almighty? In the end, the wayfarers turned out to be angels and even the angel of the Lord. We learn a lesson from this. When we welcome people, it's like welcoming God, and ultimately, we find the divine and the presence of God within those who are made to bear God's image in this world. One need not choose between God and people. That's never the choice. One need not become a monk and live in isolation in the wilderness to experience God's presence. God's presence is concealed within each human being, and within every human interaction, we will find a spark of the divine. 
It's true that interaction with people can completely distract us from God. When we enjoy a friend's company, the delight of the conversation might cause us to forget Hashem. And when we dislike someone, the negative feelings stirred up might cause Hashem to distance Himself from us. But if we learn to keep God present in our conversations, both with those we esteem and those we do not esteem, it can transform every human interaction into a revelation of God, and the godliness within you will quicken the godliness concealed within the other, brightening both. The one who thinks that he can't draw near to God because of conflict with his spouse should also look to the story of Abraham. When Abraham has conflict with Sarah, he turns to Hashem. Hashem tells him, listen to your wife Sarah. God instructs him in his domestic affairs. Moreover, we see Abraham busy with the mundane affairs of life, directing his servants, organizing details, running errands, making dinner, talking with his wife, all the normal busy stuff which one might assume to be a distraction from the presence of God. But instead, it turns out that in all these actions, Abraham actually served God and drew his revelation closer so that, after serving the three strangers, one of them revealed himself to speak as the angel of the Lord. Likewise, we need not leave God behind while we go about the business of the day. He is happy to stay with us if we will keep him in mind and include him in it. Still, life dishes out some hard stuff. In the course of a human life, we are apt to experience suffering, hardship, loss, emotional pain, physical pain, and all manner of trial and testing, which might seem to pose a serious interruption to such spiritual reverie. When the people of the world experience these things, they act surprised, as if some unforeseen calamity has descended upon them, as if God has visited some injustice upon them. Psalm 92 says, A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does an ignorant man understand this. That's because the people of this world falsely assume that they are entitled to a life without hardship, without suffering, without accident or calamity. When these things occur, they speak resentfully of God, or they speak resentfully of life itself. This is how we come by adages such as, Life sucks and then you die, or Stop the planet, I want to get off, or as Woody Allen says, Life is divided into the horrible and the miserable. Since the pandemic began, and in the political turmoil of the year 2020, that type of negative sentiment has become increasingly prevalent, and each day some clever people on the internet create new depressing proverbs. But we're not to be like the people of this world. We should ask them, who told you that life should be without suffering, trial, or hardship? That's certainly not what you were told before you were born when your soul prostrated in the presence of the Almighty and volunteered to enter this world and to incarnate into the form of you. We signed the contract. We agreed to the terms. We saw the negative. We saw the suffering. We saw the darkness and ugliness. And we said, it's worth it. Life is worth it. And we all agreed to enter into the world of concealment together, knowing that we wouldn't remember anything when we did. The entire point of living in the world of concealment is that bad stuff can and does happen here. That's what makes it good. As the Torah says, the Lord saw all that he had made, and it was very good, even the bad. The bad makes the good because here in this world, opposites define. You may have heard it said that opposites attract. 
That's true in regard to magnetism and, ordinarily, gender. But it's not good relationship advice. Here's a new saying for you. Opposites define. Here in the world of concealment, everything must have an opposite to have meaning. Without wet, there is no dry. Without dark, there is no light. Without cold, there is no warm. Without apathy, there is no empathy. Without hatred, there is no love, and so forth. This is not the case in the world to come, and perhaps not even true from the perspective of the world of truth. But it is true in this world, which God created, by separating one thing from another, light and dark, heaven and earth, land and sea. Therefore, there can be no good in this world if there is not bad, and no light in this world if there is not darkness, no peace without conflict, no sanguinity without turmoil. The bad does not make life bad. Life itself, this world and this lifetime you are living now, is very, very good. Exceedingly good. Tov meod. That's what the Bible says. The difficulties, the hard stuff, the suffering, the disappointments, and the challenges are like tests to be passed through or to be endured. They are the way of the cross, the way of our Master, and part of the whole point of being here in your skin. Through many tests and trials, we enter the kingdom of heaven. No one knows this better than our father Abraham, the father of our faith, who endured many tests and trials. In our Torah portion, we read about the tenth trial, the most difficult of all of Abraham's tests, in which God told him to give up his beloved son Isaac. Fortunately for Abraham, this most terrible test of his faith turned out to indeed be nothing more than a test, and by passing the test, he received Isaac back and the covenant promises too. Such is not always the case. As we know, God often asks us to give up more than we can bear to give up, to sacrifice the ones most precious to us, and to endure such trials in faith, not as the people of the world who grieve and mourn without hope, but as people of faith who believe in the ultimate goodness of God beyond all sorrow and loss. In such circumstance, we are able to say, it is well with my soul even when it is not well with us as regards our hearts in this world. We are those who are looking for a better world, a heavenly one, in the regeneration of all things, after the final curtain call. When Oswald Chambers and his wife went to the sickbed of a dear friend who was suffering terribly and not expected to live, they prayed for healing and for God's mercy over the man. Mrs. Chambers later asked her husband, Do you think God will heal him? Chambers replied in his Scottish brogue, I don't care what God does. I care who God is. Chambers, of course, did care deeply for his friend and ardently hoped for a complete recovery. But regardless of the outcome, for better or worse, he trusted God. He found more comfort and more consolation in the knowledge of God's person, in God's love and perfection, than he did in the hope of a temporary reprieve for his friend in the form of a miraculous healing. Once it happened that a certain man in my father's church in Granite Falls, Minnesota, received a sad prognosis from his doctor. He had some type of cancer, and the doctor told him to get his affairs together. The man went to my father for prayer, and my father assembled the elders of the community, and they prayed over the sick man. A miracle happened. At a subsequent doctor's appointment, not a trace of the cancer remained in the man's body. A few weeks later, the man suffered a heart attack and died. 
Every person our master healed from one physical ailment or another eventually succumbed to the frailties of human mortality again. Though he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus eventually died again. The hope of the gospel does not offer us freedom from suffering and escape from pain. Instead, it offers us a path through suffering and pain, a path upon which God walks alongside us. The prophet Amos asks us, do two walk together unless they be agreed? In our Torah portion, it says that Abraham and Isaac went, the two of them, together. Isaac asked, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham replied, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. Then it says again, and the two of them went on together. They went on in unity, resolved to suffer what they must suffer and endure what they must endure. Would you prefer to go through life worrying over every possible outcome or potential danger? Would you prefer to go through life bitter, bitter with your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your employer, your teacher, your pastor, bitter with God and bitter with life because things didn't go your way, because bad things happened, or because they might happen? Does bitter make life better? Does anxiety about the future improve the future? What does Yeshua teach us? In regard to the past, we are to forgive, and in regard to the future, do not worry about tomorrow. I would prefer to walk with God like Isaac walking with Abraham, going on together, whatever the cost and the sacrifice ahead might be, confident that, in the end, God will provide and that he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle against me. The Torah says that Isaac carried the wood. The Midrash says, Isaac carried the wood like a man going out to be executed carries his cross. Our master says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why do you worry about your lives? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life or turn a single hair of your head white or black? How much sweeter to learn to trust. Not to trust that God will make everything all right and nothing bad will ever happen, but rather to trust that if and when bad things do happen, God walks with us and we walk with him. Though I walk through the death-dark valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Abraham endured a series of tests that tried him and proved him to be fit to the task of father of our faith. He walked with God, and God walked with him. When the three strangers made to leave, Abraham accompanied them along the way, walking with them. And God said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children in his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then he revealed his mind to Abraham, like a man speaks to his friend. At the age of 99, Abraham received the commandment to circumcise himself. While convalescing from the surgery, he sat under the shade of his tent during the heat of the day. On the third day, the Lord appeared to him, just as a man pays a visit to his sick friend. 
the Holy One, blessed be he, said to the ministering angels, Come, let us descend and visit the sick, for the virtue of visiting the sick is important to me. They descended to visit our father Abraham. From this we learn that the Lord is with us in our suffering, and he has compassion upon us in our frailty. Thus Paul says, In my weakness I am strong. It does not say that the Lord healed Abraham or relieved the pain. It only says that his presence was with Abraham, Vaera, and he appeared to him. God does not abandon any of his creatures, much less does he abandon those who cleave to him through the merit of his son Yeshua, to whom he gave the right to be called children of God, and in whom he placed his spirit, which cries out, Abba, Father. Perhaps, at times, a person feels alone and cannot feel God's presence. But God does not ask us to feel his presence. He asks us to know him through faith, hope, and love. If we know God, we don't need to feel a sense of of the supernatural to know that he is with us. A child knows his father's love, his watchful eye, and ever-present protection even when the child does not feel his father's hand upon his shoulder. I am not suggesting we should adopt a fatalistic passivity. We should certainly hope for the best in every situation and pray for the best outcome according to our needs and desires and our understanding. When a child feels pain, he cries out to his father and mother. Likewise, we cry out to God like King David does in the Psalms, and we unburden our hearts before God in prayer. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But we trust in God with a simple childlike faith. Childlike does not mean naive, but rather that we should be like a child with his or her parents, like a weaned child with his mother. Nor do I believe in denial, which calls bad good and refuses to see evil. Bad is not good. If it was, it wouldn't be bad, would it? But bad is for the good. As Nachum Gimzo used to say, this too is for the good. The attitude of this too is for the good acknowledges the problem, but maintains optimism by keeping one's eyes upon the outcome, the ultimate good, which is in store for all those who love God and cling to him. So too with our father Abraham in all that he endured. In hope he believed against hope. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In hope against hope, no distrust made him waver because Abraham walked with God. Neither the busy affairs of life, the distraction of other people, nor domestic conflict, nor physical suffering, mental anguish, testing, nor trial could dissuade Abraham from the beatific vision. As it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place in the distance. His servants saw nothing. The donkey saw nothing. But Abraham saw the presence of God. So he said to his servants, Wait here with the donkey. We will go and worship Hashem and return to you. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul